He switched them. He switched them. See, I have his gun now. Of course you do. You took it when you arrested me. What? Take him to the Hall of Destruction for summary judgment and combustion. Wait, 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 wait. I can explain this. I'm sorry. I'm not feeling. He is the one who's feeling. Hey there, enthusiasts. Welcome back to Hero Talk. I am your host, Judge Greg. Joining me today, I am bringing Nick back. Nick, how you doing? I'm doing all right. How are you doing? I'm doing not bad. Not bad, actually. Our film today is going to be Equilibrium, the 2002 dystopian thriller action movie, I suppose. I don't know. Starring Chris Bale. Uh, as always, on Hero Talk, this is a spoiler podcast. All right, we try to keep it to the movie at hand, but we don't want to edit ourselves, so basically the rule of thumb is anything, anything that has been released is considered fair game. So you've been warned. All right, Nick, what do you think of Equilibrium? I think this movie is a good bit of fun. It's uh, it's it's something that has little things that you can uh, think about, but still at the same time, it's um, it's got a lot of style over its substance. Yeah, I can see that. This is this is one of these movies, and I really need to stop doing this. I have got to stop doing hero talks on movies that I haven't seen in a long time, but I remember being good. Because every time I do that, when I go back to watch the movie with a critical eye, I find it's not nearly as good as I remember it being. And that's the same deal with Equilibrium. Uh, I, I very much liked this movie when I saw it. And I actually, I saw it in uh, a very small distribution theater in 2002. So I actually saw it uh, the year of its release, and I quite liked it. In fact, I walked out of this movie saying, and, and this is on, honest, honest to goodness the truth, I walked out of it saying, you know what, I bet Chris Bale would make a good Batman. Oh, that's a bit prophetic there, wouldn't you say? Yeah. I that I mean, that's what I thought. I walked out of it and I'm like, oh, man, it would be really nice. So, man, can you imagine how excited I was a couple years <laughs> later when they actually got cast? I was like, oh, man, he's going to be Batman. I was so excited. Um, I'm going to bet that's about a, a, the inverse to the confusion everyone had with uh, Heath Ledger when, when they he was announced as cast as the Joker. Yeah. And then I think Ben Affleck is probably somewhere in between there. Yeah, probably. Yeah, but as I've said before, people who are all up on Ben Affleck need to remember that nobody liked Michael Keaton either, and I think he did <laughs> just fine. So, but yep. anyway, uh, so I I like the movie. I'm going to point out right now. I'm going to start right off the top of the show with it. That gun swap twist doesn't work. No, no, it doesn't. Yeah, everybody always asks, like, all right, so how does the gun swap thing work? And they always ask, like, there's some way that they haven't thought of that makes it work even though when you actually think about the movie, it doesn't work. And, you know, and and to be honest, like, when I first saw the movie, I didn't even think about it all that much. I'm like, oh, that's awesome, you swapped the guns. And it wasn't until, yeah. like, I'm still talking about the movie a couple hours later, which is a credit to the movie, that I'm still talking about it hours after leaving. And I sit there, and it just dawns on me, like, wait, that gun switch doesn't work. Yeah, it doesn't work for a lot of reasons. For one thing, it's never been established why they can actually track where guns were or where they were fired. Uh, it, he fired two guns when and he only swapped one and even more so in the editing it wound up getting put in in the wrong place so it got swapped uh, before or after it was used i can't even remember which one it was offhand but it it um uh, right it was after it got swapped after it was supposed to have been used so it didn't make any sense right so yeah it just i mean it was it was really weird and and we've had some side conversations about this movie and i think i can fix most of the plot holes with just one simple phrase John Preston is an idiot. Yep. 
He's yes. not smart. He thought he it's that whole scene works if John Preston thinks, "Hey, I did that swap." Yeah, I I fooled you. I've delivered the bad cleric. <laughs> and it's almost like at that point DuPont and and Bran are looking at each other like, "Um, all right, let's just roll with it. Let's just roll with this." <laughs> And it works better that way That's... if you just think he's just so insanely dumb. They're like, "All right, all right, calling an audible. We're gonna, we're gonna, <laughs> we're gonna make him think this work, even though it doesn't work." Yeah, it's it doesn't make much sense, but if you can roll with it. That that's where the best way to take it is just that there's a lot of stupid going around in in this movie and in particular in Preston. Yeah. Um. And, and not to say that this isn't a fun movie because it's fun. It's just um. It's it thinks it's smarter than it really is. So don't find yourself racking your brain going like, oh, what does the director know that I don't? Uh, because he doesn't. And in fact, I watched the the director's commentary of this movie specifically to see if he was going to address the switch. And, <laughs> And no, he doesn't. He doesn't even talk about it in the commentary. He's just like, oh, whatever. <laughs> Swap the guns. That's pretty cool. Like, oh, you don't even get why that doesn't work. <laughs> this is a movie that probably thinks it's smarter than it is and has enough neat little things in there that you can actually think about. Your brain can chew on for a while. That'll almost trick you into thinking that it's smarter than it is. But like you said, the the best way to explain the things that are happening in the movie is massive amounts of stupidity, and that can't be a smart movie. Yeah. Now the the uh, the director and writer who's Kurt Wimmer, uh, he's done some other stuff that I actually uh, don't mind, and some stuff that I thought was absolutely terrible. He was uh, he was a writer on the uh, the Thomas Crown Affair. That was the the remake with Pierce Brosnan and Rene Russo. He worked on the remake for Total Recall, which I actually didn't see, but uh, some people seem to like. Uh, he was a writer on Salt with Angelina Jolie, which I actually quite liked. And he was a uh, he was a writer for Law Abiding Citizen. That was with uh, Jamie Foxx and Gerard Butler, which that one actually wasn't terrible in terms of because that one would try to be a smart movie too, and that didn't screw it up nearly as bad. He was also a writer in Ultraviolet, which Ultraviolet really felt like he was just trying to um, it felt like he was trying to do Equilibrium again, but this time with Mila Jovovich, and it just didn't quite work because. Mila Jovovich, and I can't believe I'm about to say this, wasn't as charming as Christian Bale. <laughs> I I um I haven't seen that movie. Uh, I've heard it described as kind of another more refined version of Equilibrium. Here, uh, I wouldn't know, but I entirely would believe that uh, she was not as charming as Christian Bale. Yeah, I mean, it's there's there's fun things. Well, I will say one thing that he does quite well is he does like the. The crazy fake action set pieces quite well. Mm. And Ultraviolet was full of them. Equilibrium's full of them. And I like it. And, you know, as I said, the, uh, the movie is, is not a bad movie. It's actually quite fun. And the action scenes, even when they don't make the slightest bit of sense and when they're contrived, are still extremely fun to watch. Yeah, there's there's a sense of, you might call it hyper-realism with them. It's not like a whole bunch of shaky cam so you can't see what's going on. You can see what's going on. Uh, is The things that are happening don't exactly make sense in a realistic context, but you can look at it and say it's within the realm of what's theoretically possible that a person might be able to do some of these things. They they seem to make sense in a physical space. Not like um, a lot of the stuff you might see in The Matrix or those movies. There's just a bunch of stuff in that that's so far out there, it's just completely impossible. But most of these have, you can imagine something like that actually working. Yeah. Uh, speaking of The Matrix, this you made me think of this, is when I first saw the original trailers for this film, and I actually saw trailers for this film before I actually watched it. So I am probably one of those rare people who actually sort of 
have a normal theatrical experience around this movie. Because I think 90% of the people who I've talked to who've seen this movie either saw it in a DVD release because they thought it looked cool, or they saw it when it was on Netflix. But I, uh, I remember seeing the trailer, and the trailer really tried to sell this movie like it was the next Matrix. To the point where I almost thought it was going to be people doing these supernatural things. And instead, what you got was a lot of uh, grounded-in-reality-style fighting. Uh, which was a pleasant surprise, because I can't say I was really looking forward to another Matrix movie, to be honest with you. Yeah, the, the, the Matrix movies are smarter are, are not as smart as they think they are in a completely different way. <laughs> uh, in a way are, that's those, not as fun. Yes, they, they their version of smarter than they think they are, or not as smart as they think they are, I keep saying that backwards, yeah. Maybe uh, you're not is as smart just as you think obnoxious. You uh, this one is almost kind of charming. Oh, that's kind of cute, don't you think? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't smart. mind, you know, any times, like, like I said, even when this movie completely backtracked on itself and just, like, screwed it up, you're still like, eh, it's still fun. Yeah, and and it's not like this is a, a, a rock-stupid movie, either. This is either a, a blatant ripoff or a glorious homage to all kinds of different, <laughs> you know, dystopian sci-fi future things. Yeah, I, not, at one not point... Not during being 1984. Yeah, I was about to say, at one point I tried to watch this movie and see if I could catch all the references to you other won't. dystopian future movies. You will not. You, you, first of all, yeah, you, there, I was, it was a fool's errand in the first place. I gave up very quickly, but I... I found that if you were unsure, it probably was done in 1984. Yeah. So let's talk about the cast, because, I mean, this is a phenomenal cast, considering, you know, how small of a movie this thing was. And, and, and how few significant roles there were. Exactly. Now, the budget of this film was only $20 million, which is, I mean, it was more than I thought it was going to be, because it was very much an independent-style film. I don't think anyone picked it up for major distribution. At least in the United States, but that's kind of a different story there. Yeah, that's true. I Actually, it was. Uh, I hear that this movie was much, much bigger overseas than it actually was in the United States. Yeah, uh, the United States release got really limited because they didn't want to, they already had a profit overseas, and they didn't want to invest in a widescreen United States release and wind up losing money. So they kind of reined in their expectations there, which in turn is why a bunch of people that you would have talked to about this movie didn't see it in the theaters. Yeah. So I actually looked it up and it was like only about 300 theaters in the entire United States picked up the movie. That's a pretty limited release. Yeah. So that's, that's pretty limited. It was, and for the exact reasons you said, because they had already made their money. So like, ah, screw the States. And you know what? Good for them because we often get sort of the, uh, ahead of the game while the other, while the other countries in the international release are usually behind. So it's about time we got our comeuppance. And, <laughs> but anyway, great cast, starring Christian Bale as uh, head Grammaton cleric, or I guess he's not the head cleric, but he's like the most decorated one. They mention that a couple of times. He's like, he's the guy. Well, for at least certain things. Like we yeah. said, he's pretty stupid. He's but pretty yeah, stupid. He's, he's, he's really good at killing people. He's great at killing people, and he's really good at figuring out where sense of enders hide their stuff. Yep. I'm going to guess he, he just has a, a, a natural... <laughs> affinity for it and not any actual you know thought goes into yeah. it it's it's probably like one of those guys who's like dumb as bricks but then he can do his job really well because he's <laughs> he's not bogged down by all that thought <laughs> no we we can all right he plays john preston a grammaton cleric then uh we start with his partner in the very beginning now you this guy decided and that he was going to do a small part in this film. I think it was as a uh, as a favor for the director. And you want to talk about somebody who knocked it out of the park, Sean Bean. Well, it's kind of him doing his normal thing, is showing at the beginning, being awesome, and then getting killed. Yeah, I mean, every scene he was... I mean, he was... 
I, w- I almost want to say he was too talented to be in this movie because hmm. he stole every scene he was in. It's a good thing he was just in the beginning because if he was supposed to be opposite Christian Bale this entire time, and I love Chris Bale, I do, but there's no way people would have been calling it a Christian Bale movie. <laughs> if it was almost like a buddy cop. Yeah. Because he, he stole be, the show. Like, I mean, he, knowing what I know now, you know, when you go back and watch it and you know from the very beginning he's been a sense offender, to see just the look on his face, even as they're pulling up, as he's like getting ready for like Preston to go jumping through the door in a phenomenal one shot. By the way, that whole running, jumping through the door, blowing out the hinges and everything, one shot. That was one shot on a camera, went around the wall, swung around to the front. A beautiful cinematography. You seem to talk about the cinematography a lot when when I'm here with you. I do. I don't understand what it is about your movies and the cinematography. <laughs> but, uh, and I, you know, and the thing is, is I try so hard not to talk about cinematography on Hero Talk. It's like, that's not what we're here to talk about. We're not, we're not those kind of critics, you know. In fact, not critics at all. Our scores are absolutely <laughs> meaningless and we just talk out of our butts half the time. But it's, it's a great single shot. And I mean, it's, it's one of those things where you can point out, like, oh, the story had some silliness, and, you know, yeah, gunfu wouldn't actually work, but you see shots like that, and it's very hard to not fall in love with the movie when you see it. Well, anyway, as for Sean Bean's performance, I think <clears throat> if you're going to have a particularly heavy hit on the cast, that's probably the best spot to have him, because he's got one of the most... It, it, it's not a huge part. I mean, like I said, he, he gets killed almost right away, but... It has some of the most intricate elements to it where he has to start laying down hints really early, which are those little looks mm-hmm. that he has of uh, being kind of um, upset that the art is being burned and all of that. Yeah. And he's got to give a performance that would make you believe that Christian Bale's John Preston might start not taking the uh, prosium that suppresses the emotions. Right. That's uh, and, and and he does it like he he. When uh, Bale figures it out, when uh, his, John Preston figures it out and starts uh, tracking down Sean Bean, he gives a reading of poetry that somehow gets through all of the conditioning that Preston has and and uh, just starts getting under his skin. And at first, there's a bit of um, not exactly clear if it was intentional or not that he he missed one of his doses. But it's possible that, it, you know, he was rattled from his experience killing his partner. As I don't suppose you could use the word friend in this case, yeah. but it all just got to him to the point where either he chose not to or he did something weird that resulted in him not taking it. And then he just stayed off it and sort of wrote it. Yeah, I kind of, I interpreted that as sort of, he subconsciously put his dose somewhere where he was sure to knock it off because he he wanted an excuse to miss a dose. Even though his creepy punk kid was right there. Uh, Telling him to go to equilibrium? Equilibrium? No. Oh man, how do you let this kid mispronounce the name of the movie? (laughs) <laughs> I mean, and it's the only time the words equilibrium are spoken in the film is when this kid's doing it, and he says, equilibrium, the whole time. <laughs> I, I don't understand. And plus, his kid is a punk, man. You don't answer this kid right away. He is all up in your business. Yeah, he, if you he doing? doesn't give you the, if you don't give him the answer that he wants, he'll ask you again, and it's quite clear what answer he wants. Doesn't it kind of feel like the kids in charge of oh, that yes, household? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's like he he looked, yeah, Preston father. looks rattled by him. Like, um, um, sorry, sir. Like, it's <laughs> it's really weird. 
just how off off his his uh off his game how how off guard he is when when the kid's questioning him and it's like he's just a kid you know some of it makes a little bit of sense because he's off his dose he's probably going to be rattled by almost anything he sees and his kid is one of those kids that stands there on the streets and points out people that they think are sense offenders even though i think they're just pointing at random people because no one knows how to do anything in this world yeah, as though you could just tell just by people walking up, walking by. I mean, wouldn't it make sense at some point that somebody could come off their dose and just be like, "Well, and then there's that," and <laughs> just go about their day? It, I would, I would imagine there'd be more sense offenders. And also, I would imagine that if I was a sense offender in this world, I would make my home base of operation further than a day's drive outside of Libria. <laughs> You know, make it so they actually have to look quite a while before they find you. Like, they're finding people, and it's like, it's one day, they're there, they they clean it out, and they come back. And I mean, and given that they, they, they keep the uh, access to the, uh, I almost said the Narrows, because Chris Bale has me thinking Batman. They almost keep the entrance to the to the Nether. It's so guarded. I mean, who's sneaking out? I, I kind of got the impression that the people in the Nether just live in the Nether. Like, they're not coming back and forth to Libria. That's just where they live. Yeah, it's it, that's one of those things that uh, that feels a lot like 1984, where they had the... I forget what they call them and what the area is, but you've got your, your inner city where the yeah. party and all of the workers are, and then they got the, I don't know, plebes or whatever further outside the city in their own area. That's... I. I I kind of feel like the existence of the Nethers was essentially a reference to that. Yeah, I just, I just don't understand, like, why they kept finding people, like, right there. And I, um, I assume Libria is somewhere in, in Western Europe, mostly because everything in the movie is from Germany, because that's where they filmed it. So I presuming that they have a lot of German influence because they're, they're in where Germany, Germany used to be. Yeah, yeah. It, but at the same time, it doesn't necessarily matter just where it is. It could be anywhere. But it, it also begs the question, is Libria a, a city-state unto itself? Is it just like the only place that's still holding itself together while the rest of the world is falling apart and there's just a few people right outside the city? At, or are there other nation states out there that Libria isn't in contact with? I mean, it, it's another one of these uh, post-apocalyptic themes yeah. where exactly how do you know how bad it is that far away? Yeah, exactly. Uh, I mean, for all we know, the United States the is basically time? all like fallout. All right, so moving on, because we, we can't talk about how awesome Sean Bean is all night. Well, <laughs> we, we could, could but, but that's not very interesting. Uh, we have a smallish role, but uh, just somebody I want to touch on. We have Sean Pertwee, and I think it's Pertwee. Uh, plays father. By the way, father's not real. He's dead, and he's just a hologram. But it's it's really odd seeing this because you have Christian Bale, who obviously makes me think of Batman, and you have Sean Pertwee, who I've been seeing lately playing Alfred in the new TV show Gotham. So you you can see why I'm saying the Narrows, and I got like Batman on the brain because you got so many people in this movie that are referencing Batman in my head. Yeah, yeah, it's very hard to distance them from themselves, especially for a movie where when I even saw it the first time, I openly admit I thought, hey, this would make Chris Bale a good Batman. So I mean, this was basically his Batman audition tape. Uh, interesting side note: Sean Pertwee is actually related to one of the old uh, Doctor Who actors. I think it was the third one. Um, but yeah, you just see him in some footage like little telescreens letting out speeches to the people yeah. or those weird holographic boxes those were a little weird yeah well was was the point were they trying to convince people that he was actually physically there 
I think when I first saw it, I thought that's what they were trying to do, and it was just supposed to be like a secured box like the Pope Mobile. Right, right. That's what I thought. But it it also just looks it didn't necessarily look fake while it was on, but the whole arrangement just seemed so forced that like it kind of strikes me that no one would fall for that, and it was intentionally just supposed to be like a more realistic projection. And it yeah. was known that it was a projection. But what was, I thought about that, but what struck me as odd is if everyone knows that's a projection, why are there four guards guarding the projector? Maybe it's an expensive projector. <laughs> we can't have people. Yeah, there's a lot of armed guards wandering around Libya, by the way, for a state that's supposed to have already like gotten rid of violence and wiped themselves of emotion. You have a lot of guards wandering around. For, that's true. For people who shouldn't actually have any issues. And also, does Father basically just run speeches 24-7? Cause, and, and just about every outdoor scene, you can hear him saying something or other. His, their screens are everywhere. In his apartment, the kids watching, like, Father just talk about, like, how bad the 20th century was. It was, it was really kind of odd. Like, you know, we're so, other than the fact that you're trying to set the scene for me, the outside viewer, like, do people in Libya really need the constant reminder of what prosium is and how it works? <laughs> <laughs> How good did it, like, is that, did, do they forget? Is that just what goes on? Because they don't have all those feelings, so they can say, by the way, yeah, you have to take Prozium. Well, maybe part of the issue is that when you get rid of their feelings, they get rid of the, the, the feeling of being compelled to take the drug. Maybe. I don't know. It's, it, anytime you start talking about not having emotions, there's a, there's a weird lack of definition of exactly what that means. Is it just like really, really strong emotions? Like at one point when they're discussing, uh, prosium, they say it, it, uh, removes the big highs and the big lows. Does it get rid of everything or does it have like a yeah. threshold limit or something? Or are, are we going to be, Labeling ambition as an emotion, in which case, ain't no one gonna try as hard at killing to get as good at it as John Preston is. Right. You just wouldn't care enough. And, and speaking of that, that leads us into a, another major character in this film, which was Tay Diggs as, as a brand, <laughs> who shows an awful lot of emotion for somebody who is uh, ostensibly on the dose, as, as far as I can tell. I mean, I guess towards the end of the movie, it kind of gets implied that he is off the dose. Yeah, well, there, there, there's a couple of ways you can you can take this, and that's actually one of the things I think is to the movie's credit, where there are multiple reasonable explanations you can give, and it's not explicit that either he's just a guy who has a nice smile, and it's just something he does, there, but there's actually no emotion behind it, which is mm-hmm. really creepy, yeah. or in one of those early scenes before you see him smiling, he has a line about, I need to go get my dose adjusted, and right, yeah. he, because he got partnered with Christian Bale, they took him off the dose, and that's when he starts getting all smiley, because yeah. they took him off the dose, basically as a promotion. Right. I mean, it was, it was just kind of odd to see him smile, and then like towards later scenes where he's yelling, and, and yeah. like showing some outward emotion, and I could, I can understand when like Chris Bale's showing emotion, but he like, it's cause he can't handle it. But when mm. people are doing this like out in the open around people who think that nobody's supposed to have emotions, it's, it's not really, now, we've already established, John Preston, for this movie to work, he has to be dumb. So the fact that he's out rearranging his desk and doing all this stuff out in the open, like, that's, that's dumb because he's dumb. He, he starts hiding his dose behind, physically behind his bathroom mirror because he's dumb, instead of getting rid of it completely altogether. Like he did the first time. Like he did the first time, in a way that seemed to work pretty well for him. Mm-hmm. Instead, like, well, let me, let me find a way to get rid of my dose that leads to much more physical evidence. 
Whatever, John. You just stick with what you know. I actually quite like Tay Diggs in this movie, and it's kind of because of his his smile. And I know that's weird. And the director said the same thing. He actually hired him because he really liked his smile. And he's like, I I know we're gonna get flack because he's smiling in a movie where it's not about emotion. But I liked it and it worked. And it kind of it, he the director felt it was sort of an empty smile, like you said, in a way that kind of makes it a little more sinister. And that here's this guy who's smiling at you and doesn't mean a single thing to him. It's it's yeah. just a facial tick basically. So let's we're gonna just go on down down the the cast list because there's a lot of guys and here's another major major character that we really need to, to talk about is uh, Angus McFadden. Uh, he plays Dupont, which is and I actually tried to look this up. Like I can't remember exactly what his title was. It was something weird like the Vice Council. Yeah, it uh, that's that's one of those things. He doesn't have the uh, actual title that would imply he's at the top so whatever it is after that doesn't exactly matter it i thought i i seem to remember a third in there somewhere but it doesn't matter yeah like a third vice council to the, i don't know it was it was a really weird kind of arbitrary title although it's basically implied that he's he's father's right hand man uh until later yeah. in the movie when it's basically outright said that he is father yeah yeah, yeah. He, he just admits it and the charade is all up I mean, I guess it was a fun scene. I You sort of saw something happening with the father angle because you never actually saw him. And you had to figure there was some sort of twist in there because you'd already tried a couple of twists in the movie already. Yeah. Uh, and in, in terms of twists, that one isn't bad. Yeah, but at the same time, it is. While it's not bad as a twist, it's also one of those uh, another one of those points that's basically straight off of 1984. It's basically Big Brother. Yeah, basically, yeah. But, I mean, it was it was fun to see him in there. I liked him. I I kind of like I like the whole character now. It, it's it's pretty well established even even from about the midway point in the movie. Dupont is basically straight up off the dose. He's oh, not absolutely. even he's not even going through the pretense of being on yeah. the dose anymore. He is just screaming and yelling and pounding and and Preston doesn't even notice cuz he's dumb. Yeah. It, it for someone who's supposed to find uh sense offenders and understand how they behave, he's really bad at spotting it. And that's actually something that uh DuPont pointed out cuz his wife was a sense offender and they were together for years and he never noticed. And DuPont points out, "Well, that's this is your job. That's kind of inexcusable." Yeah. That's sort of a big deal there, Preston. But at the same time, they uh, uh, right before he goes overboard and starts actually openly screaming at Preston, uh, they they actually do, and it's almost disappointing because it's set up in a in a good way. Because right as Preston's getting off the dose, one of the first things he does is take off his glove so he can just touch a handrail and feel it, and you actually get a shot of earlier in the conversation, DuPont does the same thing with his desk. He like trails his fingers on the desk as he's walking around it, just feeling it. And that shot's in there specifically showing his fingers so that I am, I feel confident that that was intentional, an intentional reference. And then literally about 10 seconds later, he slams his fist (laughs) down on the desk and screams at Preston. It's like, okay, that just undid any subtlety you had. Yeah. I mean, some, you could make the argument that he is trying to, he's not, obviously, but you could look at that and say he's trying to fake being angry to rattle someone who just got off the prosium, but that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. No, I mean, that's, he's uh, just not being very subtle. Yeah, basically. He's just, he's just not subtle about it. And now I don't mind the idea that these, you know, he's, he's off the dose because it really does seem like his inner council of the people he surrounds himself with, they all know he's off the dose. 
They have to. Yeah, I mean, they have to. I mean, for one thing, his office is filled with the kind of stuff that they consider contraband. Oh, yeah. Paintings and ornate columns and beautiful marble. and Yeah, so anybody who would work around there has to know. And so you really wonder, like, what's going through the heads of these guards? I mean, because if if Preston is on the dose, then you have to figure, like, this isn't something where it's just... You know, the established powers are, are off the dose and only only the citizens are because like Preston was on the dose and was expected to be on the dose. So at what point in this upper echelon, like where is the line for the inner circle of these are the people who know that, you know, the the high uppity ups? Because I have to assume nobody else on the, count, on the, the, the council doses. I would just imagine that they were all feeling whatever because... You know, why would DuPont feel so special? Well, that was another one of the points that uh, uh, of the movie, or at least one of the ideas in it, is that you get dictators like that. They're going to be hypocritical to their own rules. So, yeah, there's probably going to be some. First of all, obviously, DuPont is endosing, and yeah. obviously he's a hypocrite about the whole thing. And even in his final speech, he basically implies that anybody dosing isn't a real person. Um, but... One of the, one of the, um, like you said, there's going to be some upper echelon or some inner circle that's got the privilege of not dosing. And that's why I think that might be what happened with Tay Diggs mm-hmm. is that when they assigned him to Christian Bale, that was his promotion to the inner circle and granted him liberty to not have to dose. Yeah. So, I mean, do you figure like you have like the normal, I'll, I'll just call them stormtrooper guards, but like, you know, the bike helmet, you know, the motorcycle the helmet guards. Yeah, the sweeper guys. I think that's what they were called. So those guys that are assigned to him, do you think they have to dose? Or that are assigned to him, or that uh, yeah, yeah, like like the ones that are in his office that can clearly see what's going on. Do you figure they have to dose, or 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 what? Do you, or maybe... I would I would assume they would be considered some degree of elite to be assigned as his personal bodyguard troop. Okay, yeah, I mean this is it's a point that I actually have never really thought about until until now that you know where, where does the line end? Where 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 do this the uh, the authority who's dosing end and the authority who's considered the inner circle who doesn't have to dose begin like they got to be out there i think you're putting too much thought into it now i do think i'm putting way too much thought into it so let's let's go to something with a little bit less thought who else is in this movie uh he was in the movie as daniel lee his actual uh full actor name now is danny lee clark he was the lead sweeper he was the uh he was the guy who kept asking preston to check his trunk when the puppy was in the trunk and he yeah. is none other than American Gladiator Nitro. <laughs> so that's just a fun little little thing to point out that uh, I mean, you can't see his face in the movie. Like the the most you see of it is when the bike helmet visor's up, but you don't see very much of him. Uh, I didn't know it was him at all, so I'm not some American Gladiator aficionado who saw Danny Daniel Lee and knew. Uh, I watched I watched the director's commentary, and he basically said like, "Yeah, that's Nitro." Yeah. Well. That's a thing that happened. Yeah, and and probably what was one of my favorite scenes, I think, in the movie in terms of action sequences, because I uh, I kind of liked how it worked out, and it was one of those few scenes, and there was a there was a couple of these in the in the film which I I really liked, which is there were at some points in the movie when a person like got into it so bad and they were in like some real real trouble, they almost like the negative emotion of self-preservation almost overtook the prosium. Because you get a lot of guys who, like, when the chips are down, are like, uh-oh. And then they're like, yeah, they start they, freaking out. And I, I've decided that that's not inconsistent directing. That is actual, like, fear overcoming the prosium. Yeah, you'll drop an expletive, even if you're on the drug, if the A1 uh, Tetragrammaton cleric is going to kill you, yeah. has decided that you're going to die because you know you're going to die. Yeah, if he's flipped your own gun around on you. 
Yeah. It is that, that, that's another one of the, that's one of those little shots. They had two sweepers, each with shotguns pointed at Preston's head and he hit them. So they spun in midair so that he could grab them by the handles in midair and just shoot them in the face. Right. It's, it is uh, a yeah. nice shot. It's actually a really, really fun shot as, as much as I don't want to condone somebody getting shot in the face with a shotgun. Uh, it was just, it was a really fun sort of action sequence when that happens, and then he got to, got to do some shooting out out in the the, the narrow nethers. Yeah. I'm just gonna call it the narrow nethers now because I'm bound to call it the narrows at some point. So yeah, but that was actually a, a fun scene. And he did there's a lot of fun stuff like that where that he he did some trick gunplay. What I like about this movie, as long as we're we're talking about action right now, is it really seemed like each action sequence kind of had its own little twist to it. That's true. You never really saw the the same thing more than once. Like if the guys all lined up around him so he could shoot them all in a circle, you know, they didn't line up the same way the next time around. Ye- kind of, yeah. yeah. There was there is the one in the opening. There is the one there in the narrows where <laughs> you know there's a lot more tension because he's in an openly compromised position and he's trying to maintain mm-hmm. you know his own. Uh, uh, cover i guess you'd call it there was the one where he was pistol whipping a bunch of sweepers yep. that one was kind of weird there was the rampage through yeah <laughs> through the central oh that whole thing was crazy yeah and the the duel with dupont mm-hmm. uh, um right and then there was the the run and gun sequences oh that's true and there was the uh the the training sequence with with brent Yes, that's true too. I, yeah, that one had slipped my. I, I, I was thinking of gunplay in particular, so right. uh, that one slipped my mind. Yeah, what what I like of that scene is because that scene with Brant sets up the final confrontation with Brant, where you think you're going to get another fight like that. But what they're what they're trying to say is, and what the 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 polygraph was supposed to show to you was like, well, when when they were training before, Preston's all conflicted and he's he he can't control his own emotions, and in that one moment when Dupont keeps taunting him. And and the poly goes straight. That's him now. Hey, guess what? I just I just figured out emotions, not a control thing. <laughs> it's either he he figured out emotions or his rage yeah. uh, flipped over, and it's like the high score rolling over in a game. <laughs> yeah, that was that was really great when that happens, and everyone, and especially when the guy running the poly figures it out and knows exactly <laughs> why that just happened. And another expletive from him. Yeah. Although interestingly, he's he's the one that uh, Preston did not kill, probably that, because. He knew he was just a guy doing his job. Yeah. Although I could argue that that guy being in the room and knowing what he knew and being able to, like, be right there, as DuPont says, who he really is, he's probably one of the inner circle who probably doesn't have to dose. <laughs> that is so, a distinct possibility. Yeah. that's it's a, it's a new way to look at the movie when you think about, like, who do you think? Like, watch the movie and think, who's good enough they don't have to dose? <laughs> No, well, that's, talk- that's another yeah. that's another thing to the movie's credit is that that's one of those things you can watch and think about. Right. Yeah, there's I mean there's a lot of good stuff in this movie. It's not well well we point out that Preston's dumb and just about everything he does is stupid except for figuring out where the sense of enters hide things and killing people. Uh there's a lot there's a lot that was really good to the movie and I think it's the strength of the movie and it almost makes you really wish they had just tightened up those story elements a little bit more. Because that's the difference between a cult classic that everyone kind of likes and a phenomenal movie that people repeatedly go back to over and over again. Uh, I'm not exactly sure this movie really has anything of its own to say, though. 
because uh, it takes so much from other things in terms of message. It doesn't add much to it. So yeah. I'm not sure you, this would ever transcend, a, you know, fun kind of cult classic movie because well, maybe there's not. No, but I think yeah, it, would, it could have been more fun and gotten a larger people would go follow. back and reference. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's true. Cause, I mean, basically, anything that people would go back and reference, they would they could really just go back and just say, well, just go to 1984. Yeah. Or because that's probably where they did it others. first, or yeah, any of those yeah. other movies. But the, the the only thing you could really take from this is is the gun kata or gun fu. Yeah, yeah. I should probably get used to calling it gun gun kata because gun fu is sort of what they use to refer to what John Woo does, mm-hmm. and and all of that stuff. But I just love the phrase so I use it to describe the gun kata. Yeah. Uh, which I think Kurt Wimmer had some status in figuring out. I like the idea of the gun kata. I actually think it's a lot of fun, even though it's stupid, ridiculous, and wouldn't actually work in any real situations. Yeah, whenever I talk about this movie, the the, the acceptance of the concept of gun kata seems to be your great litmus test of who <laughs> would be able to stomach this movie. If you can get past that idea, you'll probably enjoy this movie. And if you can't, then you won't enjoy this movie. So if anyone out there is thinking of showing this movie to someone, that's the question to ask. Just tell them that, okay, there's this thing called gun kata. And if they don't yell at you at that point, yeah. then you explain that the idea is that there was a lot of analysis of gunfights and they've determined that if you fire at these angles and these sequences and move in these ways, you're most likely to hit people without getting shot back. And then if they still say, oh, that's that's obviously unrealistic, but you could have some fun with that, then yes, they will have fun watching this movie. Right. Because that's exactly what I thought of Gun Kata, is like, oh, that is absolutely dumb, but I'm willing to ride this train and see where it goes. <laughs> so another person we got to talk about, we have a few more people in the cast uh, that, that we cannot gloss over. We have Emily Watson as Mary O'Brien, and I really kind of wish she had more to do. Because she basically just gets arrested and then spends the rest of the movie appearing in interrogation sequences uh, until she dies in a scene that really seemed it really seemed to be sort of artificially designed to to be emotional. Yeah. Um, what really strikes me about the scene is when Preston runs up on the scene is like, I need I you know I need to question this person. I'm a Grammaton cleric. Uh, you got to get her out of there. The guard says, Oh, the time lock's engaged. If we open it now. Then it'll blow at street level. <laughs> like, what kind of design is that? This is the worst Who makes turbines like ever. that? What's? Why would your you fail even build safe, it? Your fail safe for turning off the mechanism to not kill the sentence person. The fail safe <laughs> involves killing a bunch of people yeah. on the street. Yeah, That's a... not a fail safe. <laughs> why would you set it up that way? Why not have it blow into the nethers or like at a thousand <laughs> feet in the air? <laughs> Why? I mean, it's under that huge, huge underground tunnel. Why is it in the middle of the city? Yeah, you're <laughs> right. Why isn't it under the nethers? The it's... only possible explanation is that there's like a central heater or, or yeah. furnace for the entire city, and it's just a chamber that they shove people into. Yeah. So you can't turn it off or something. Right. I mean, it's basically the only reason they would even set it up that way is so Chris Bale would have to be there and watch her burn. Mm. And also, to be honest, I didn't like. It's it's very much implied that uh, that uh, Preston gets feelings for her, and in a little bit because he she reminds him of one of his wives. I say one of his wives, um, not because Preston had multiple wives, but because there are multiple actresses played Preston's wife in this movie. 
Uh, there was there was the one who was in the scene where she gets arrested, and there was one that was in the scene where he was watching the footage of her trial. And those were two different actresses, because I guess they couldn't get the one actress back for another day. They figure like, well, she's wearing a hood in the trial. No one's gonna notice. And to be honest, until yeah. I saw the uh, the credits, I didn't notice. So you 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 won't you won't notice. Yeah, unless you watch the director's commentary, and then he's gonna point that out, and then you're gonna notice. Yeah. But yeah, I guess it's just. It, I mean, is is that it? Am I? Should I not read into that? Does she just remind him of his wife now that he's feeling I, I he remembers he likes really his wife too much? That she reminded him of his wife. Uh, I I I did kind of get the sense of, of a certain sense of infatuation between mm-hmm. that bit where he kind of almost kisses her. They have yeah. that you know elongated shot, and the bit where he carries her ribbon around with him and and smells it every so often. Mm-hmm. The ribbon he he stole from evidence. Yeah. Um, I don't know if he was supposed to be having feelings for her or he just didn't understand how feelings worked in general. Yeah. Cause she, she also, she had a, uh, a relationship with his partner that he killed, Errol Partridge, Sean Bean from the beginning of the movie. And yeah. She was his, uh, widow. Yeah. So, I mean, that was, I mean, that made it a little bit interesting, but it was, I, I, I just didn't quite, it, it felt like if you're going to get Emily Watson in to do this role, you ought to give her more to do. Because it just it just felt like she didn't have a whole lot going on that that didn't really need to be Emily Watson. Well, maybe they added more interrogation scenes for yeah, that. Maybe. All right. So so one last guy, and then we can finally put the cast to bed and talk about whatever parts of the movie that we haven't actually talked about yet. Yeah. Speaking of Batman. Yeah. So now we have Jurgen William Fichter as as Jurgen, who played the bank teller at the mob bank at the beginning of The Dark Knight in what was one of my favorite scenes from The Dark Knight. Uh, that, that was the scene that really, I mean, that was, wasn't that the one that they kept showing to everybody, like, in the sneak previews, when they kept yeah. having those, they were, they just showed that scene? Yeah, was, it was that whole yeah. sequence, that, and in the IMAX releases, that was the, you know, the, the IMAX releases for Dark Knight had some scenes in IMAX and yeah. some not, but that whole sequence was shot in full IMAX. It, it, it was, and I actually, I saw the Dark Knight in IMAX more than once, and, uh, gorgeously done scene. If you don't have William Fickner in that scene, it doesn't quite work. No. He's, he's, like he's phenomenally talented, and he was very good as, as Jurgen in this movie. Now, and, wh- and, yeah, and, and this role as Jurgen has, uh, some subtlety to it as well. Almost the inverse of Partridge, of Sean Bean's role. Yeah. Exactly. Um, now this guy, and I was, I was very heavily under the impression, and he almost comes out and says it, but he doesn't quite. I think, isn't, it's kind of implied Jurgen's on the dose. Yeah, yeah. Like he he's, doesn't. He's the one who says that he doesn't feel so that other people can. Yeah, like he believes in, in feeling, but he understands that in order to sort of, in order to blend in, in order, in order to, you know, not be giving away, and in order to do what he has to do, he stays on the dose so that he can still go up and among people. And in fact, and I, I, I almost missed this the first time I saw the movie. In the opening scene, when, when Sean Bean and, and Chris Bale's characters are coming back from the very first trip out to the Nether, and Father's giving his speech where he's reminding everybody about the history of Libria, which I imagine he probably does every Tuesday afternoon, I suppose. Uh, when he's like, Libria, you have won, and it, and it jumps up. Jurgen is the first guy who stands up and does the standing applause for Father. I mean, he's Interesting. Right yeah, he's right there, uh, he's in that part, stands up, does the clap. That was all Jurgen. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, uh, count that as another one of those little touches that this, yeah. this movie's kind of full of. Yeah, and that was very, very on purpose, very intentional to do that. The director mentions it in his commentary that, you know, like, oh, you probably might have seen him earlier if you thought about it. And he's, uh, 
he's there and he's he's the guy who stands up and claps. So I think that's very heavily implied in that he he takes his dose because he can work better in terms of managing the underground topside if he's on his dose and he's not actually feeling. Yeah, and when he's talking, he 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 does a great job of conveying that he's not emotional, but right behind that, it's like his heart is crushed. He's just mortified by the fact that he doesn't feel. Yeah. All right. So now that we've rounded out the cast, let's and we've talked about a lot of these action set pieces. Let's talk through a little bit uh, of the story and some of the elements of the story that stood out to me. The biggest one, and I touched on this earlier, the sense offenders that they go out and that they, they kill seems like these guys are just outside Libria because it's always like a day trip. couple hours. Yeah, really. they go out, they they sweep them through, they find all their stuff, they they burn it on the spot and. Then they keep these people for processing, and it just seems like everybody just gets burned anyway. <laughs> I don't, I don't really understand. Like, even if it's like, oh, if you interrogate, I'll see they go easy on you. Like, wait, wait, wait a minute. Now everybody just gets burned. There's, that, that, they that's go a little easy funny on because anybody? they have a flamethrower with them when they go out on patrol, yeah. and instead of using that to to just burn up the sense offenders on the spot they bring them in so that they can burn them in a wildly less safe chamber <laughs> yeah it really when when they and it would seem like when they got towards the end they're like oh father said now we have to crack down so we need to kill them all on site <laughs> like isn't that functionally what we've been doing even when we arrest them don't we just take them back to kill them and when we kill a lot of these people on the scene too I mean, preston walked in there at the one opening sequence and he just killed everybody. Oh yeah. He was he was not trying to take anybody prisoner, so it really didn't feel like it was all that outside of what they were already doing. But uh, apparently there is some fancy of due process still alive in Libria. Yeah, even though it just feels like for sense offending, we are going to send you to incineration, and everyone seems to just go along with that. Like, that seems like a bad way to die. I would almost rather just get shot in the head for resisting. Yeah. Like, what? what? Just cause a, cause a scene and, and get yourself, <laughs> get yourself and, shot. And especially, like, how much due process is associated with the kids that point out people on the street? It really did feel like those kids point to somebody and then the guards just grab them and go. Yeah. So, I, I don't know. I mean, those, are those people just summarily burned or whatever? But Well, it, it, I, it was enough to make uh, Preston uncomfortable when they said summarily execute them out in the field. Yeah, he did seem unnaturally uncomfortable with that. Um, I'm just going to go back to Preston's kid one more time. I, I understand that this kid, he's supposed to be implied that he's like constantly evaluating his father and that he's actually really smart, and he himself has been off the dose for such a long time. But this kid creeps me out, and I don't like him. He's he's not in the good, fun way, in the, like, I hate every time this kid is in the scene. Yeah, it partially just because of how grating he is to Preston the whole time. He's very not endearing, because at... Earlier on in the movie, he comes across as a, as a point of threat right. uh, because he could expose Preston because he's one of those kids that's in line to be in a cleric and he's, you know, pointing out sense offenders. Right. So they would have us believe. But then later on, you find out he hasn't been taking his dose. And so now he's supposed to be sympathetic. And it's it's really grating as a viewer to have to swap like that because there wasn't much endearing about him in the first place. He was very robotic and antagonistic the whole time. Right. And then when you watch it in subsequent viewings, knowing that he was off the dose the whole time, it makes the first parts seem all the more disconnected from, from the rest of it because it's just, you, what are you doing? I said, what are you doing? You need yeah, to it go drives to you away from the kid and yeah. toward Preston. It does a good job of making Preston sympathetic. Yeah. 
but having to, to just having to accept the kid later after using his presence in that way doesn't right. feel right. It, ma- it makes it harder. Now, the little girl, you kind of got the feeling she was a sense offender. Uh, of course, yeah, because she played with her cereal yeah. and, and whatnot. But, of course, Preston didn't have any idea. He's a moron. Of course not. But... And I, I actually saw a lot of people uh, on some message boards, and forgive me for going on message boards, but it was 2002, I'm allowed. <laughs> I saw a lot of people on message boards saying, like, oh, how could nobody tell that that little girl wasn't taking her dose? I'm like, oh, well, I kind of got the idea that she was a little too young to have started school, and Preston's an idiot. So when you combine those two things, that little girl could go off the dose and nobody was going to notice. Yeah. This was kind of weird. When, when Preston is sleeping in his apartment there, he basically sleeps on top of the blanket without a pillow. Like that's that's nuts. Like and it didn't. I I kind of watched to see if there like maybe he tossed the pillow, but he didn't. And if at first I thought you know like hey well maybe I, I didn't even know that there was anything on the mattress. I thought like they're like oh well blankets and pillows were too much of a feeling. But first the kids had blankets and pillows and. On his wife's side of the bed, there's no blanket or, or pillow, but they're like, it's just a bare mattress. It's not what he's sleeping on. So his bed is clearly made with some sort of bedding, but man, that was just so weird that he sleeps like that. Like, that felt unnecessary. Like, you know, body temperature regulation, That's that still exists, even if you, you don't feel. <laughs> well, maybe as a high-ranking cleric, he's got a pretty good HVAC system, and they use it as an excuse to just show off christian bale without a shirt on yeah i thought he was wearing a shirt actually uh no he woke up drenched in sweat oh okay well maybe he wasn't well you know what he, he works out quite a bit so yeah good for him and then he uh he manages to go and he pulls that the stuff off his window because i guess looking at the view was considered a sense offense or was so so yeah so they just had like a little bit of contact paper on the inside <laughs> of everybody's windows rather than having it be frosted laminate between panes of glass or something Right. Like, I mean, it's just, it's so crazy because there's, there are ways you can do that where you can't just rip it down. Now I get it's a <laughs> movie. Like you need, you need to give him that part of the movie so that he can rip the stuff down and, and be clear. But, and this, you know what? This drives me nuts. It, he like, he gets like the majority of the stuff off the window and then he almost claws kind of radically at some little tiny piece that's left. <laughs> and then he's like, all right, now I'm good. And there's these other large pieces that are still on the window that he seems perfectly okay with. Like, you just went off like a psychopath on this little <laughs> strip that was still there, and you have these larger chunks that are still on the window that you're not going to even touch now. Like, Maybe because they weren't thing? immediately in front of his face. I guess. I don't know. It, I, it, it was enough to kind of jar me the first time I saw it, and it doesn't get better with each subsequent viewing. I still think, why are you, why are you so worried about that one piece? And not any of the others. But yeah, I just, you know, Preston didn't really strike me as, as too swift. And so maybe I shouldn't, maybe I shouldn't put too much stock in that. Maybe it's just the answer is Preston's dumb. Hmm. Now, let, let's, I want to just talk about the underground for a second because there's this, there's a scene in here I want to, I want to really point out. But this whole making contact with the underground, like, Preston is not all that smart. We've established that. He's not. And when he finally does make contact with the underground, it wasn't that hard for him when you think no. about it. Like, he figured out his partner liked to read, so he went to the library <laughs> and basically threw a guy through a wall, and he found the underground. Well, I mean, he, he is a savant at finding contraband, so yeah, secret entrance, I guess, would count. Yeah, it was just it just struck me as kind of odd, and then t- they, they take him to the underground, which is literally underground. 
Yeah, and it, it's not even all that well hidden. There's a grate about 10 yeah. feet above them yeah. that's open to the street and people walking over them. Yeah, it's not deep underground. It's it's literally just underground. Like, if somebody accidentally dropped something heavy, it would fall into the underground space. <laughs> or if you all... drop a pen down yeah. that grate, it would hit one of them in the head. Yeah. I mean, it was it was not very well hidden, and then they have all this stuff, and it's like, well, wouldn't it be smarter for you guys to go outside the city, or maybe that's where they look, so maybe it is smarter to keep it inside the city. I I, I don't know, but then you know they have all these leaders. Now there's a, there's a scene in here after Preston pulls the switch that doesn't really work, and he he finally decides like, oh, I want to see Father. His whole point is like he has to get it, he has to kill Father because that's part of the plan. So he has to kill Father, and in, in what was what well, seemed kind of odd that he would need to kill Father because. The underground already seemed to have bombs at every single place where they made prosium. So you would think they would also have bombs at wherever Father's broadcasting from, or at least be able to figure out where... Like, they're so connected, yet they can't touch Father, and they're not going to make a single move till they have Father. Even though they, they established towards the end of the movie, like right at the very end, that uh, they have a pretty sizable standing army. Yeah, that's... Uh... That's another one of the holes that you probably shouldn't think too hard about. <laughs> yeah. They they shouldn't be that connected and not know that Father doesn't exist and it's all actually DuPont. Yeah. Um, they just suddenly get almost irritatingly effective in their assault at the end of the movie because they're, they're just dying by the dozens earlier. And then, oh, Father's down. Now we attack and there's a coordinated assault in all these different positions. And you see sweepers just getting mowed down. Yeah, like, it really makes you think, so why did you guys need Preston? Maybe they just had a tremendous morale problem. <laughs> it's, that's really what it just comes down to. They're like, oh, <laughs> there's no point in attacking. It's, it's, that's the problem with going off your dose, Nick. Is that <laughs> you get these downs where you get so depressed you're not going to do the job, guys. Maybe, maybe some of the problem is that uh, Preston and uh, Partridge and all of them found all the good emotional content <laughs> material, and they're stuck down there in, in the underground with... Uh, Philip Glass recordings yeah. and stuff. They're getting like all those emo poems that kids were writing in high school before <laughs> World War Three. Oh, <laughs> boy, yeah. But so there's this there's this scene where you know like he's going to give up the the underground and and so this is this was odd. So in the director's commentary, the scene where he's on the phone and everyone's kind of around him. The director yeah. said that was an homage to a certain film. And he said, I will give a case of beer to anyone who figures out what it's an homage to. Then if 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 you have to bet for people to find out what's going on, you, you're probably yeah. not doing it well enough. Right. Now, I, lo I looked over the internet in 2002. I looked over the internet in 2014 to see if anybody knew what he was talking about. Nobody knows what movie he's talking about. If somebody knows, toss it in the comments on Enthusiacs.com, because I have no idea what he was trying to say and what, what movie that was supposed to be. I just, I don't get it. Because it's just people sitting at the table with Preston on the phone. It's like, that's that's in like a thousand movies. Well, maybe it's something to do with the cinematography. Maybe. Uh, I just, I couldn't figure it out. I didn't know if maybe you had heard that somewhere in, in your various travels. Yeah, I, I remember it from the director's commentary, and, and I, I googled, I googled, you know, Equilibrium director's commentary case of beer scene, and <laughs> oh, it, it gives you some pretty weird stuff. 
But uh, I I never found anything about it, and I was I was just curious because I I have no idea what he was trying to reference there. Yeah, I I never even saw that referenced on TV tropes, and those people are maniacal about making any connection they can. Yeah, they are. So I maybe it's just it's it's too obscure, or he just didn't do a very good homage to it, so it wasn't good enough for anyone to pick up on it. Yeah. So I here's a here's a question for you. So when 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 all like the prosium factories blow up. All of the the resistance leaders were in in the tunnels there, which was like an, an old subway in in Germany. I think kind of looks like it a little bit. Anyway, it was the great locations for this movie, by the way, because the places oh, yeah, they beautiful. go. Yeah, I mean, they it, it looks like it would be, and it's all basically in Berlin. Hmm. So kind of makes me want to go to Berlin. In fact, all they, they used a lot of like German cars and, and German stuff, but. There was a there was a lot of places that they were uh, built for the th- 1936 Olympics. Huh. That so, uh, yeah. That that puts an interesting spin on things when it, you know it does that. A I didn't bit, know that. Especially when because the uh, the tetragrammaton flag, in addition to kind of looking like a cross, sort of looks a little bit like a swastika. Yes, it does. So it's so it is kind of interesting that like they're 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 kind of this Nazi esque leadership in in a lot of yeah. places that were built literally by Nazi Germany. <laughs> You have the resistance, and they're they're at the they're at the the furnace, and they hear the explosions, and they kind of give the smile. Like at that point, when everything's going wrong, and there's attacks all over the city, the guys running the furnace, do they still put the prisoners in the furnace, or do they maybe just go into lockdown and try to figure out what's going on? Like, do you think the maybe, resistance dies? Maybe if they were really clever, they'd set the furnace to go and then open it so it explode <laughs> on the street. <laughs> That's what they could do. They could they could have ended this whole thing. <laughs> we fixed it. You're welcome, Libria. <laughs> I I like that version. Yeah. <laughs> How it should have ended could really jump on that right now if they wanted to. So let's let's go let's do this end scene here because this is uh this is a pretty decent point. I thought it was kind of interesting that you, you, you finally get to the end scene and so Preston is in his dress whites with his ceremonial white sword. Now they take the white sword away. But they don't check him for guns. Like, do they just presume, like, oh, well, he clearly wouldn't have guns. He's in his dress whites. Guns aren't part of that uniform. Like, wouldn't, don't you check him for guns instead of just saying, like, you're going to take your sword at your word because we can't be too careful. But except for checking you for guns, that would be way too careful. I, that's just another one of those things in this movie <laughs> that you can't think too hard about. Yeah. Because he had those, he had the pistols and the, and the quick release things in his sleeve. Yep. Maybe that's a modification he did on his own, but I don't think he's handy enough for that. Maybe, maybe more people than just him are stupid. So, yeah, maybe, maybe Jurgen made those for him. Maybe those don't actually. I don't know. Yeah, maybe those aren't standard issue. Maybe, maybe Brant was supposed to be in charge of that, but he was having too much fun not being ghost. <laughs> oh, Brant. So you just had to lean in and just rub it in. Yeah, I had to just check twist the knife. And didn't want to stick around. That's that's what I kind of find odd. Is because he here's here's the guy who's ostensibly going to be your next A one number one cleric, and you know gets all gloaty when is now that he's feeling again. And then you know so they're they're planning to take the guy who was the previous A one number one cleric and you know kill him essentially. And Dupont's sitting there taunting him, but Brent has already left the room. Like Brent's already like, well, if you'll excuse me, I'm going to go down the hall to the pretty room. Where the guy who's talking to you is talking. Yeah. So he just kind of leaves and heads down there. And it's it's this craziness where, like, why don't you stick around and make sure that you actually take care of John? Or, or why don't you just shoot him in the back of the head right then and there? 
<laughs> instead of having to taunt him first and let him know how big much of a failure he is and like how you made your career with him because by giving him that opportunity you give him the chance to get himself centered again and then he kills everybody you left around to kill him i mean even beyond that why was it why wasn't the metal detector before the <laughs> the lie detector yeah oh boy. yeah don't you don't want to think too hard because it makes for a very very fun action sequence so like i don't want to point out all the reasons why it shouldn't work because i want it to work because i like the next sequence where he like throws the two the two magazines down the hall and then he's got yeah. his and then he like he shoots then he reloads from the things in his wrist then he runs out of ammo but then he, he reloads on the things on the ground and then he's out but then he like kicks up the gun and shoots the next guys and then shoots through the door and the other guy is standing on the other side of the door <laughs> probably should have hit some of the clerics in that room too but... <laughs> yeah. whatever yeah so he I mean, I the, the, that was a fun, a fun oh, yeah, action yeah. sequence, and, yeah. and, and that's that's another one. I keep in my head wanting to compare that to the uh, bank raid scene that was all in slow mo in the Matrix. Right. And both of those scenes are fun in in different ways, but again, the one in Equilibrium just feels more grounded. There's it do, it doesn't feel like I don't think they used wires in this movie at all. No, I don't. I don't believe they did at all. Which is probably why it feels more grounded, because they definitely used wires in the Matrix. Yes, I. I really. I like that sequence. I like when he gets in the office. He probably shouldn't have been so surprised by the clerics coming out from behind the pillars, as because he had to have seen them on the way in. Yeah, he walked in the room. You would. You. You literally walked right past two of them. It. And he gets so shocked. But then that that kind of scene where he has no gun because he didn't bring a gun in with him. I don't know why he wouldn't bring a gun in with him. There were guns laying right there in the front. The guards <laughs> a he lot just of them. Other than Every the fact person that... he killed, and there were a bunch of people he killed <laughs> yeah. on the way in, each had a gun. And he's not above picking them up because you saw him. He's certainly fine with using them, but no, he dropped it. He dropped it, enters completely unarmed, just so we can get the next action scene, or the action sequence, I guess it's all part of the same scene. But yeah. he, he comes in, and he, he just, just for so that we can have the next action sequence, he does not bring a gun in with him, when he could have just ended the whole thing right there, while he had the big old gun, and be like, oh, I'm just gonna shoot DuPont and Brent <laughs> while I'm here. <laughs> Through the door, I don't, I don't even need to go in this room. Done. Yeah, I'm, I'm right here, I have the big gun, I'm just gonna shoot them in this room. But but the action sequence that came next, I actually quite enjoyed. Where he takes the, the takes the sword from one guy and the scabbard from the other guy, and they just had, cuts the scabbard on one guy's sword to sharpen the end, and then does the double stabby. Yeah, he he kind of like dodges and does a misdirection to actually help him do his next thing. That happens in a couple of other sequences, but that having the other guy sharpen his scabbard with a missed swing is a pretty nifty little touch, which he then uses to stab one of the two last guys. Right. I have but, I have yeah. not seen that done in any other movies. Have you? I I don't think I have, but if I have, it would have been in an anime or something. Yeah, I was trying to think of it because I thought it was very very clever, and I thought I'm yeah. surprised more people haven't done that because it actually it was it was very clever and it was fun sequence. Um, oh yeah, yeah, it, and that's it was it was actually very similar to the one where he pistol whipped all the sweepers because they were all in a tight circle around him. Mm-hmm. But this time he didn't have any weapons; he had to steal a, a sword, yeah, to to get at them all. So it it again, it's another one of those fights that had a different flavor to it. Mm-hmm. He had a running gun and then a tight sword fight, and then the the just one shot drop fight with uh, Brandt <laughs> immediately after. Yeah, cut his face clean off and. I, yeah. It was so blatantly CGI, but it still worked because I thought it was fun. And because in the higher-up shots, like the top-down shots, you still see Brant's face sitting next to him. 
I wonder if his face on the floor was a CGI insert or like a photo that they just laid down right. on the floor. You think they just maybe just took a mold of like Taydig's face and just dropped it down? Because I'm that not point, sure they even took a mold. I think they yeah. they, they might have just like printed out a headshot and cut out around his face like one of those old cereal box masks oh, and just yeah. laid that down on the floor. I mean that's all you need. There was no depth to it because this was a very high up shot. And obviously by that point, Tay Diggs is not the guy on the ground anymore. Now it's just some <laughs> guy you hired. Yeah, they wanted to make that fight more elaborate, but they couldn't get Tay Diggs for enough time. Yeah, I mean I think it works for what they were trying to say. Is hey, the last yeah. time we fought, you know, it was I I was I was all over the place, but now that I'm focused, we're not we're not equals. Yeah. Plus, I you know what I kind of. It led to another part of the fight and something that we hadn't actually seen before, which is two practitioners of gunkata trying to out gunkata each other. Yeah, and and it's it's it was an interesting sequence to watch because you they were dueling with pistols at hand to hand range and they were just constantly working to parry each other. There's an occasional shot here or there where they thought they might have had an angle, but their hands and their pistols are just deflecting each other constantly. Yeah. It's it kind was, of fun to watch. Yeah, it was it was very fun to watch. I'm I'm kind of glad if if I basically I'm assuming based on you know the fact that Tay Diggs couldn't do the the big fuller fight scene that that was well if we can't do that then we'll just we'll just have a Dupont and and Preston fight at the end uh, and if that was the case uh, I think that was the way to go because it was it was really great and then you get this this fun sequence at the end where you get to play it back where you know Dupont gets to beg for his life and Preston's just holding the gun on him and and I swear. Preston is just waiting for him to set him up to say, I pay it gladly. He's just like, say something, set me up, set me up, say something, something, something where I can say, I pay it gladly. I want something to reference Sean Bean at the beginning of the movie. Say something yeah. to let me do that. Yeah. So then the next scene, and I, I want to point out, because in this next scene, when Preston comes out of the elevator with a couple of dead sweepers, he's got this cut on his neck, and he's he's been bleeding down his whites. And for a lot of people thought this was actually, uh, there was a cut in between scene. And it actually was just, it was a very conscious decision by the director. There wasn't a scene cut. He just decided if Preston's been fighting through sweepers this entire way to get from DuPont's office to, like, the father hub, he said, I don't care how good you are, eventually somebody's going to be able to at least get a flesh wound. Yeah. So, but uh, yeah, I, when when I first saw it, I thought that uh, one of the shots from Dupont had actually grazed him on the neck there. And when I was watching it again, I was I was actually looking for it, and no, that didn't happen. But you know what? I, I'm just gonna say that it happened, and that's where it was coming from. Yeah. All right. So now's the time on Hero Talk where we discuss what our favorite part of the film was. And so, Nick, what was your favorite part of this movie? My favorite part of this movie would have to be the opening sequence where um, you see that, like you mentioned, that one shot where they zoom around, where Preston kicks down the door, slides all the way into the room, and then there's a couple moments where you hear the sense offenders just kind of whispering to each other, it's like, is he there? Did somebody get him? Shut up, shut up. And then you see little shots of him shooting off in different directions, and when everyone's down, the barrels of his guns are glowing in the dark. Yeah. You know, oh, that, yeah. that was a neat shot, and you don't really see that anywhere else, but he certainly did fire quite a lot, so... I, I love this scene. Even 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 the parts that were absolutely silly and ridiculous to it, I still love. Like, like the there's... fact that he was standing bolt upright the entire time and didn't move. Yeah. Uh, if I had to say my favorite scene... And the the opening scene, it's it was definitely in consideration, and it was very close to being that. But I have to say, I really love 
that that ending sequence, like right after the polygraph goes flat, and then he just kind of goes on his wanton level of destruction, where he just decides, all right, I think I'm gonna just kill everybody now. Yeah, I I just love that part. It was fun. It was you get to see Chris Bale doing doing the gun kata and flipping around. You get to see like all these guys getting shot left ways and right ways, and then you get a that. couple of uh, there's a couple of little innovative little uh, touches in there with the ma- the weighted magazines he throws in. Oh yeah, the ones that just kind of like they're they're almost like those bopping clowns that always yeah. are upright. Yeah, the weebles. Yeah, it's plus I mean this is an action scene. It's all one scene. But there's three distinct different types of action sequences that you get. First, you get the run and gun. Then you get the close quarter sword play. Then you get the close quarters gun kata. It's got a little bit of everything. I, I do have to give uh, an honorable mention scene as well, though. Okay. Oh, fair enough. Uh, yeah. What's what's that? The uh, the bit where he's trying to help the sense offenders escape, mm-hmm. and a bunch of sweepers surround him, and he takes out his pistols and gets the the spikes out the butts and starts yeah. essentially pistol whipping all of them to death. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, there, the first time I saw it, I thought he was just essentially hammering them in the visor, and they dropped, and it didn't make a whole lot of sense. But when I saw it again, I realized that when when he was using his pistols to hammer them in the head and hit them in the knees and whatever, he was all they were trying to shoot him the whole time, and he right. just kept deflecting the muzzles away, and so he. Yeah. He was forcing them to actually shoot each other. That was really good. Now, Nick, for Equilibrium, what would you score this movie? All 120 kills that Preston had. Wow. All right. If I had to score this movie, I would give it four creepy little kids pointing out sense offenders out of five. Hmm. Yeah, I, uh, you know what? I, I, I think I was originally thinking I was going to give it a three. It was gonna, I was going to drop it one point because the gun swap didn't work. I was going to drop it another point because they made a point of killing some dogs in the movie, and I usually drop things a point. But the bottom line is the dog thing did happen off screen, and he saved a puppy, and he killed a lot of guys to continue to save the puppy. <laughs> and so I think that gives you an extra point back. When, when, Fair enough. When you start killing American gladiators to save a puppy, I think you deserve an extra point. <laughs> So that, that's what I got it. So anyway, hey Nick, thanks for uh, thanks for joining me and thanks for doing this with me. I had a fun time. All right, and by the way, Nick, happy New Year. You too, man. All right, so on behalf of myself and Nick, I just want to thank everybody for joining us. If you have a movie you want us to discuss, or if you want to join the panel, you can email Hero Talk at enthusiacs.com. For more podcasts, let's plays, articles, videos, and reviews, visit enthusiacs.com. You can follow us on Twitter, that's at enthusiacs. We are on YouTube, channel name is enthusiacs, and as always, we will see you right back here on the next Hero Talk. Hero Talk.